as a founder that's raised $40 million over the last several years for you know, a couple different companies, fundraising is a full-time job and it distracts from founders focusing on building and build, you know, creating value in their companies. So that's one of the main reasons that I got excited about this opportunity was to, to solve the problem for our founders. But then we kind of learned like, what's the problem that you know, VCs have? Because it's a two-sided marketplace effectively. And so our technology enables them to be a part of those opportunities at the earliest point to have their chance to get allocation and to create deals. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. I am super excited about this week's episode. It hits very close to home. If you've listened to the pod before, you've probably heard me mention my passion project, a platform that helps democratize access to capital for founders, and that project is called Thunder. On this week's episode, I sit down with Thunder's co-founder and CEO, Jason Kirby. To give a bit more context, Thunder is a company that actually came out of Interplace Foundry. That's the part of Interplay that builds companies from scratch. And Jason is the incredible CEO that we brought in to help build and grow the company. Now, Jason and I get into all types of details about Thunder and its platform during the chat. But at its core, Thunder is a platform that connects founders, VCs, and angels by utilizing a double opt-in AI-based matching protocol that not only creates super relevant deal flow and connections for everybody, but really helps everyone save time by avoiding spam. We started this company with the mission of helping founders that lack strong networks raise capital. We wanted to democratize entrepreneurship. And Jason is a serial entrepreneur that has done an incredible job so far. Not only has he advanced the business, but he has advanced the vision. I believe this company is going to materially improve the way capital flows, not just in venture capital, but more broadly across alternative asset classes. I am so excited to watch what he's doing and to continue supporting him. Uh, The company just released a completely new front-end design, taking the product from basically an MVP to something legit. Also, they just launched a dashboard that shows investors all of the deals that apply to them for funding, ranking them by fit, and unearthing all of the key data points investors need to quickly make decisions. This should make everybody's life a hell of a lot easier. Be sure to check it out at thunder.vc. Uh, During our chat, we talk all about how Thunder works, how it helps founders and investors, but we also dive deep into Jason's wisdom as an entrepreneur. He started a bunch of companies and has learned a lot of things, and he shares some great insights from everything around mental health to M&A. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This episode is brought to you by Venwise. Venwise is a curated community of high-growth leaders. It's isolating being a leader, but it doesn't have to be. Through Venwise, you can join discussions and gain support from fellow C-level executives at high-growth tech companies. If you're interested, apply by visiting venwise.com. Jason, thanks for being here today, buddy. I'm excited to be here. Okay, let's, let's start at the top. Do you mind giving us an overview of Thunder? Yeah, happy to do so. So Thunder is a tech-enabled investment bank where we are focused on early-stage venture uh, to make it easier for founders to raise capital from the right people and VCs to vet and uh, catalog and analyze and rate deal flow uh, faster than any other solution with our AI. What's the problem we're trying to solve here? Why, why does this need to exist? I mean, the machine's working, right? The whole industry is transacting right now. Why build this? 
you know, as a founder that's raised, you know, $40 million over the last several years for, you know, a couple different companies, you know, fundraising is, you know, a full-time job and it distracts from founders, you know, focusing on building and build, you know, creating value in their companies. And albeit it's a necessary evil to, to, to have in, in them, you know, as a founder, ultimately it comes down to founders spending time with the wrong investors. Uh, countless investors will just take deal flow and they'll be like, oh, this is interesting. They'll listen to it and they'll keep their, you know, they'll keep the, the door open, but not really actually be serious about the opportunity, leaving the uh, founders on the hook to kind of be like, oh, like, I'll make sure to follow up and like continue that conversation. You know, maybe it's there, but in reality, it's like a 99% no. Um, and so what we're trying to focus on is, you know, rather than opening up the door to hundred VCs, you know, we're trying to laser focus using our AI to identify you know, the three to 10 VCs that are actually going to be willing to cut a check for specifically what you're building and having you focus your, you know, rifle shot uh, on those VCs as opposed to a shotgun approach, which is unfortunately what a lot of you know, founders do. Maybe they get lucky, but in a lot of cases, they're just losing a lot of time and not being able to focus on the product. So that's one of the main reasons that, you know, I got excited about this opportunity was to, to solve the problem for, for founders. But then we kind of learned like, what's the problem that you know, VCs have, you know, because it's a two-sided marketplace effectively. And so what we looked at is a lot of VCs, you know, out there don't necessarily have deal flow problems, especially well-established, you know, VCs that have brands or have, you know, a following online in some capacity, but there's, a, you know, 2,500 VCs, you know, out there in the U S and more growing, you know, more coming up into the, um, you know, the ecosystem every day, you know, new emerging fund managers that don't necessarily have the, those connections and that deal flow. And a lot of VCs that, you know, are outside of the major markets where a lot of the deals are happening, but want access to great deals. And so, you know, our technology enables them to be a part of those opportunities at the earliest point, you know, to have their chance to get allocation into great deals. And also our technology uh, in itself, for VCs that have too much deal flow, you know, we have the ability to process catalog analyze and rate, you know, their deals to only bring attention to the best deals, you know, for them, you know, streamlining their processes and effectively, you know, acting as a, as an analyst, saving everyone, you know, a substantial amount of time. Okay. But let me pick that apart a little bit. There's a lot of VCs, I think, that don't want founders to know exactly what they're looking for. And the reason why is because they want to be opportunistic, right? So they've, you know, I used to say every VC basically has the same website. Right, they don't articulate nuances or theses, and when you meet them and you chat with them, it's very clear. Many folks are investing in very different things, and it may not even be different sectors. It may be different dimensions of the business, or strategies, or types of founders. And those little nuances, once they come to life, they really do guide a bit of the matching in this game. But I think there's an argument for VCs where they just want to see all of it and be overwhelmed. Uh, in order to just make sure they don't miss the one out of you know the needle in the haystack, how does this, how does that um, fit within the kind of thunder framework? And so I think that's what you know specifically separates us from you know, what might be out there in the market already, where you know it's a lot of bullion checklist you know type things that uh, you know founders or you know, VCs use to identify you know, uh, you know deal flow. Effectively, what makes us different how we take advantage of that opportunity is a lot of generalist VCs is kind of the label I put on them where they just want to see it all. You know, <clears throat> we sit down with the VCs on our platform. We do, you know, anywhere between a 15 to 30 minute call to understand those nuances, uh, to understand, do they just want to see, you know, the best deal that's you know, hyper relevant to their investment thesis or are they more of a generalist where they want to see anything that could potentially be of interest. And so we take that into consideration and send them what they're looking for. 
Uh, and again, you know, in some cases it's you know it's automated. In some cases, it's a human relationship where you know we're looking through our deal flow and due to our relationship with those VCs, we know you know what's going to pique their interest, what's going to get them excited, whether they're more of a early stage, you know, team kind of focus, where it's less so much about the idea, it's more about the team, or you know, broad sector, you know, focus where there's just general SaaS, you know, we have the ability to identify um, what correlates with what VCs want and have that flexibility to tailor it specifically to their needs. Um, you know, for a lot of VCs that don't want a lot of deal flow because they are they feel like they have it all and they're you know doing whatever they got, we know that when we send that one email, it's going to get answered. Whereas some VCs that want to see a lot coming through, we have a dashboard for them to kind of navigate, sort, and filter and do whatever they see you know fit. They can follow our our scoring and rating mechanisms if they wish, or they can dive into the mix. You know, we have hundreds of companies coming to the platform. You know, providing their information, giving a lot more detail and insight than they would get, you know, beyond just the deck and other things to be able to kind of sort and standardize the information that they, you know, it's important to them. Now, I know you, you, you have a rating system. Can you describe kind of what the rating system does? I mean, I, I think there's probably an appropriate level of fear that your ratings will be wrong, right, for that venture fund. Everyone feels to a certain extent that they've got a kind of a special lens for how they're picking their companies. And also, they may not be looking at the same, interested in the same deals as other people. So, you know, a, a rating isn't a universal thing, right? Beauty is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. So, how do you, how does the rating work for mm-hmm. VCs? So, we have three scores. We have a company success score that takes into account a variety of different, you know, variables from what stage they are and you know what sector they're in, and depending on what sector they're in, what. Uh, you know, level of traction they have in relation to their sector and stage uh, that give us high signal, low noise. Uh, and, you know, is this company venture backable? Does it have what it takes to you know to get funded? Um, and so that gives us our our success score, which we use. You know, Z scores kind of think of like a standard deviation from negative three to you know, plus three. You know, it's the extreme outliers are the ones that we really focus on. On uh, at least the ones that we double down on and make the intros for. Um, you know, those, you know, kind of three plus uh, type companies. So those are the ones we, re- you know, reach out and go through our due diligence process. We pre-vet them and, you know, highlight them on the platform and make the intros manually. But the rest of the companies, you know, the, the scores effectively take into consideration the company score, the investor score, which is the investor's willingness and likeliness to invest in that particular company. So this takes into consideration of, you know, what fund they're on, uh, how much capital they have left in their fund, uh, what check sizes they write, you know, are they a lead or are they, you know, don't lead? Do they like to uh, you know, occasionally lead or co-lead? So I take all those considerations in uh, to factor in comparison to the company that's it's being presented against. And then we have a compatibility score that des- takes into consideration the, uh, what we call like, you know, the secret sauce of the, fat, you know, the, the VC in terms of what they're specifically looking for, their criteria. Um, like I said, there's, Things to fill out, data to collect on the platform, but in those intake calls that we do with our VCs, there's that extra something special that we try to take into consideration. Either we populate into the model, or we just have it as notes on the side. So before we make the intros, um, we reference that to make sure it's going to be aligned with what they're looking for. So all three of those scores effectively go into what we call a simplified match score, and that's what's published on the website for for VCs only. So companies don't see any of this information. Companies are not allowed to you know start reaching out to any and all investors. We give the investors a control of you know who they want to interact with if they want to you know take action on the platform, uh, or they can just sit and wait for us to to send them the email notifications and the direct um, you know kind of validation or recommendation if they want to move forward with a company or not. Um, so 
that's that's how the scores work. It takes in right now it's about eighty five different points of data, both first party and third party data from other sources, uh, to basically populate those scores. So when this started, it was simply just a game of is the company in the right sector, stage, geography, et cetera, the basics, true or false for this investor match. Yep. And you've taken it to the next level and built this whole algorithm, right? So now these scores are the rating of a company for you as an investor, for each individual exactly. person. It's kind of this personalized recommendation engine. What kind of, what kind of math and technology is going into making those scores work? Because what you're describing... You know, the reality is I don't understand it. It's, it's too much data for me to crunch in my head, <laughs> right? Uh, how, how do you get all those inputs to jive in a way that actually yields something that's useful? So for that, I have to bring in my partner, you know, our chief data scientist, Matt, who's a you know, PhD uh, from Columbia in behavioral data science and doing his postdoc at uh, Princeton right now. In terms of the, the data that we collect and how it's processed, um, I would probably butcher it if I try to, to go into the finance, the, not financial, but the, the models that he uses to, you know, weight the different characteristics. So it takes into consideration both, you know, human intel you know, intelligence, both from, you know, VCs in the market in terms of how things are weighted over others. Uh, and then it takes into consideration, um, you know, third-party data inputs that are trained from like taking crunch-based data in terms of what makes companies, you know, successful from historical data that's able to be captured from there in terms of past funding rounds, uh, and public information that's available in other sources to identify, you know, trends that happen in, in different sectors. So it's a pretty convoluted and complicated model that will, to be honest, will be constantly be evolved and trained to, um, you know, deliver on expectations. Um, you know, right now we're fortunate in the way that it's built to be almost as if the model was built for each and every single investor, um, you know, specific to their criteria. But there's going to be certain nuances in different sectors. You know, some things we don't necessarily have a good grasp on. Or things are more like deep tech. Um, you know that you know there's traction is very different in terms of what, when they're raising you know for different rounds. Right. You know, biotech, those types of things. So there's certain sectors that you know require a significant you know different model with different data inputs. But for your traditional VC backable you know startups, uh, you know specifically you know any kind of level of tech. Uh, or CPG, uh, those ones we have pretty strong confidence that will you know, yield solid results. Okay, so the, the bit you were saying before, the key value add for VCs that are kind of big brands, they've already got plenty of deal flow, is it's like high signal to noise ratio, right? What, what's the narrative for the venture firms that are not big brands? Firms that maybe not everyone knows about. So there's a lot of great you know, firms out there, a lot of what I call like poorly marketed capital pools, you know, billions of dollars, you know, being managed by great VCs that, you know, chose not to be you know, big on Twitter or LinkedIn in terms of influencers, you know, a lot of deals, you know, happening within their networks. And so the value proposition there is getting access to deals that are far outside their network. There's a lot of amazing merging, uh, you know, founders that, you know, are diverse that don't necessarily have the broad network uh, to an access to capital that you know some other you know maybe previous founders or other founders that uh, um, you know are easily identifiable and that are building great companies but are truly struggling to to get access to the right people and this is something I dealt with when I was uh, you know my very first company I was in San Diego back in 2012 trying to raise capital for a marketplace and it just 
couldn't get in the room with the right people. And I was pitching all the wrong investors because that's all I had access to in my network. Ultimately, you know, we're growing 40% month over month. We had $40,000 a month in, you know, GMV and we just could not get in front of the, the right VC that was, you know, going to be excited to, to work with us. We just couldn't open those doors, cold email, all that kind of stuff just went to the bottom of the list. And so we act as effectively that, that warm enter, that partner, you know, to that VC that pre-vets deals that are specifically related to that VC and align it with, you know, founders that we think this is going to be a smart money play you know, for them to make sure that they're going to get the capital they need to, to build out their, their future and uh, their future product and, you know, create a great return for, for VCs. I think the natural reaction to this as an investor is that it's going to lead to a bunch of spam. That's the fear, right? There are services out there that have basically crawled the internet and added a lot of VCs and their personal information, including their email addresses to the web. I get it. but why would, you know, people wanting to sign up for something, you go and sign up for something like this. You know, I think there's, it's natural to be afraid that there's just going to be an onslaught of interest that maybe isn't relevant for you, which is just more work. And also mm-hmm. it sucks. No, no VCs want to reject companies. It's the worst feeling ever, right? These are people passionately working on something to improve the world. How do you handle the spam dynamic? I'm excited to ask that. You know, when we talk about how the platform was originally designed, that's ultimately what it led to. You know, it was too open, allowed founders that, you know, didn't do their homework to basically have direct access to these, these uh, investors. And based on the data and what we collected through that experience, what we've seen on other platforms that, you know, ultimately never succeeded was the spam factor. It's just more noise. You know, it's just another cold email as far as how, you know, the platform was originally designed. And so what we've, you know, doing now acting as, you know, the, you know, effectively the, the middleman in terms of vetting these deals prior to them getting in front of VC. So of the hundreds of companies, we're not sending you a newsletter with, hey, check out these 20 companies that we think are cool and just more noise that you're not going to click on. No, we're looking at, again, having a relationship with the VCs, you know, knowing what they're looking for. And then when we send that email, we're talking about sending one, maybe four emails a month. You know, we're not looking at sending, you know, 20, 30 deals uh, you know, a month and just adding to the noise. So, you know, if the deals that pass our vetting process, you know, we're looking at a few a month, you know, maybe in the dozens a month once we start hitting scale and you know, what we'll be more there. But again, those are all going to be different categories, different sectors that, uh, you know, most VCs that are on our platform have gone through our entire intake process. And like I said, we'll get one, four deals a month that are hyper specific with an explanation as to why we feel they're a fit to your thesis um, and, you know, what you're looking for. So there's that human intelligence and that human layer there that, uh, you know, allows us to go above and beyond in terms of that expectation, as opposed to just, again, trying to automate everything, make it a SaaS and just, you know, allow free for all, which many companies have tried before. And it, you know, it doesn't lead to success. And, you know, it's basically the same thing as cold email. I also love the double opt-in nature on the platform. Do you want to recover that? Yeah. So we're removing the ability for, you know, founders just to have direct access, um, and, and vice versa. So effectively making sure that both parties opt in for this because, you know, if you're a, a founder and you want to help fundraising, you know, there might be a really great VC, but they've invested in a competitor. So you don't necessarily want your company information, your proprietary information, your debt getting in the hands of that particular VC. So that's, you know, vetted before those intros are potentially made, you know, and for the you know, VCs, you know, getting deals, um, we reach out to that VC, we show them, you know, the material and, you know, information about the deck and, you know, hey, we recommend that you take a meeting with this company. 
but you might not have interest. There might be something that you're know, like, hey, we did a similar investment or hey, we don't like the space, whatever it might be. And then that founder never gets any notification of rejection. You know, they, you know, we basically, you know, log that into our system. We might alter the you know, algorithm or some of the information to profile to better make better fits. But that, uh, you know, both sides are protected in this case um, so that founders are not wasting their time spending their wheels sending 10 follow up emails that they're not going to get an answer to. And, you know, VCs are not having to deal with, you know, have, trying to explain their uh, reason why they turn them down or, you know, feel like they have to ghost them. Got it. Uh, what kind of information are you giving the investors when they're when you're saying, hey, we like this one? Have a look. So it's twofold. It's um, one, there's a very simple introduction, a couple bullets of what we what we think makes this deal sexy. Uh, and then a link to you know the deck and a link to their profile where it's like all encompassing. And if they request to you know move forward, uh, that VC is going to not only have the option to meet with that founder, but also once that meeting you know, happens, that founder can unlock their data room, which we've already pre-established and already have ready and due to our you know, pre-vetting process. So all the data room details and information that at least probably 70 to 80% of what a VC would look for is already going to be ready to go um, and for them to be able to do a deep dive. So the founder has control of when that information is released, um, you know, considering you know, the progress of the meeting. Okay, so unfortunately, I'm becoming an old VC. And I only know that because some of the younger folks keep reaching out as they're starting their funds and asking for advice. And I share what I can. I'm still learning as well. Uh, a lot of them are asking for LP intros. And I've been using Thunder as a solution for that. I'll say, look, you know, there's a bunch of people on Thunder who are looking to invest in funds. Go there. Uh, I think their heads explode sometimes. Because, you know, the way you find most LP introductions is through a series of emails. It's a chain. Yeah. Uh, do you want to cover the value in this for LPs? Yeah. So as far as our, our new product that's launching, we're allowing you know, high net worth individuals, family offices, you know, and other forms of LPs, funds of funds to have access to GPs. Uh, so in, you know, we've been focused primarily on the founder to VC, you know, conversation, but I'm glad you brought up the LP to VC. Um, so effectively, LPs put in what they're looking for, you know, pretty simple uh, you know, information to provide, whether they're acting as an individual. Um, and that information you know, is able to go into, again, our you know, matching specifically for LPs to VCs, which we haven't touched on. But effectively, GPs decide whether they're operating out of a, a closed fund that's, you know, they're not longer raising fund, or they're actively raising a fund, or they're operating, you know, deploying capital out of an active, you know, the raising fund. And we ask different questions based on, you know, what fund uh, there are and if they're actively raising. And if they're actively raising, there's the opportunity for us to, to match LP to GP, you know, based on, you know, what type of fund they have, you know, what's uh, check size, what they're looking for, what exposure, you know, what markets are getting exposure to that, you know, LPs want. Um, and then we're able to make, you know, exact same process as founder to VC in terms of making those, those intros and those recommendations and the exact same process. Um, so that's something that we're going to be scaling up in Q2 uh, to, to be able to bring that together. So this is a big behavioral change for a lot of folks, right? I mean, you're talking about nothing new in the sense that founders are getting in touch with GPs and GPs are getting in touch with LPs. But this has historically been done just over email, right? Whether it's a cold email or a warm email or a, a message through LinkedIn or whatever else, it's basically some form of digital messaging platform. Mm -hmm. And it's bespoke. 
Have you gotten a lot of pushback on the behavior change here? What are you seeing with people reacting to this? What, what skepticism do you bump into? You know, I'd say on the, the skepticism side, you know, a lot of people just, hey, I have a system, you know, I do, I do deals, why do I need this? And, you know, a lot of the reason that we come back with that is, you know, popular term in BC, FOMO, you don't know what you're missing out on in terms of, you know, the deal flow and opportunities that, uh, you know, we're going after and we're bringing to the table. But then <clears throat> something I think is really interesting, just the market dynamics as a whole, is you're starting to see um, significant wealth being generated for the first time, you know, as millennials and some Gen Zs, you know, coming into money, uh, whether they worked for a big tech firm for a while and, you know, their options invested and now they're, you know, they have seven figures of capital and they don't know what to do with it. Or maybe they gambled in, you know, crypto and, you know, stock market recently made a ton of money, but now they're coming to terms like, mm, this market going south real quick. I don't really know how to manage this. Maybe I need to put my money into someone, you know, who knows what they're doing. And, you know, specifically for me is like, I got into angel investing and once I figured out how to get deal flow, I was just massively overwhelmed. It was a full-time job to make the right bets. And rather than deploying individual $25,000 checks, I was like, maybe I should just throw my money into a fund that kind of aligns with, you know, what I believe in and follows my investment strategy than trying to do this myself. And that's ultimately what I did. And I see there, I think we're seeing a lot more of those types of people come to the market, but they don't necessarily have the connection, especially like top tier funds, you know, you can't write a quarter million dollar, half million dollar check and get exposure to you know big funds that have been out for a long time. But you get exposure to great funds, but you might not know you know who those who those people are. You might not have access to those networks, uh, and to be cold emailing as an LP, um, you know you probably get an answer, but it's it, you know who knows if it's a good fit. Maybe that GP has certain requirements. So we basically take care of that you know unknown aspect and make the relevant connections when the time is you know right. Both parties align. Um, so that's how we basically are taking advantage of what I think to be a big market shift that uh, you know, a lot of people aren't you know, talking about. Okay, but on the surface, there's a handful of other sites that look just like this mm-hmm. in the market. Um, and you know, they're, I think they have the same mission. It's to facilitate the matching of investors and people seeking capital. But there's a big difference. So how, how, does, how are those folks, those other platforms, how have they affected your ability to kind of get the message out here? Because I would imagine anyone who's been on one of the other platforms is having, a, you know, they've figured out that it's a spam machine. And I would imagine you're being met with hesitation. Yeah, because people put us in that bucket, especially now with the, you know, the MVP still in the market. Um, you know, by the time this comes out, the new product will be out and, you know, that problem will be, you know, resolved. But that is the initial concept, and that's why we have changed how the product experience will work is to eliminate that uh, negative connotation of spam and you know the perception that it's just more noise. You know, we listen to the audience, we listen to both sides, and you know from founders, VCs, LPs, and you know we feel that we're taking a very difficult approach, but with the right technology to make sure that it scales um, without having to sacrifice quality of you know the genuine connection so using you know ai is great technology is great but left to you know its own without any kind of humor uh, intervention or intelligence or relationships involved ultimately becomes just like every other product out there Uh, and so that's why we went the broker dealer route and you know are focused on success-based outcomes as opposed to you know a SaaS free-for-all where anything and everything goes and you know mostly just turns into to noise and spam that gets neglected Okay. Are there geographies where this has been more relevant as you're looking at the data and the patterns? 
I, I know people from around the world can kind of tag into this, but not all investors invest in you know other geographies. What um, what have you learned? So at this point, we are predominantly focused on the broader U.S., you know, Canada. Um, we do see some deals coming in from Latin America and Africa and Europe. Um, but from a, a prioritization and systems process uh, perspective, um, we're focusing on U.S. We are seeing a lot of uh, founders outside of major markets um, that are being attracted to VCs you know, that are either in other markets and or the top markets. And so being able to make those connections, again, solving that, you know, you don't know who you don't know uh, problem and making right. those types of introductions um, to founders that are building great companies are just outside of the traditional, you know, tech ecosystems, which with the massive work from home movement that we've seen um, is opening up doors and, you know, it used to be a talent issue. You know, if you weren't in the top market, you didn't get the top talent, but with a lot of top talent moving all across the country and, you know, having that freedom to work wherever, uh, that's no longer, you know, restraining factor. So we're capitalizing on that trend as well. Okay. Right on. So look, I know there's a huge roadmap for this, right? You've got a extensive plan here that you're putting together. Where does this go in the next three to six months? How does this product evolve? What should early adopters be expecting? Yeah, as of right now, uh, we're really optimizing our, our flow through your due diligence and finding the best companies, so both sourcing and vetting you know, deals. So that's going to be our, our primary focus. We'll be rolling out the uh, you know, GP to LP functionality, allowing that to kind of grow organically and uh, identify you know, room for improvement. Probably three to six months, we'll be tripling down on that. Um, that area will be allowing it to happen. We'll be focusing on making some of those deals happen so we can continue to evolve and adapt the platform to, to meet those specific needs. And then um, you know, beyond that, we're looking at you know, being able to close and you know, the dozens, if not more, you know, deals in terms of uh, you know, companies to VCs, just kind of given what we've learned over the last you know, six months. You know, we feel we have the right pieces in place and you know, our BD license you know, coming together, uh, you know, we'll be able to, to execute on that front. And beyond there, you know, what's something that we haven't touched on is you know, some of the data that we're collecting you know, one of the integrations that we want to make in terms of the roadmap is, you know, third-party connections, similar to like a Zapier type API type connection where founders are able to uh, connect certain data sources, you know, to Thunder to auto-populate their monthly, you know, traction updates uh, so that we can have trending data um, over a period of time. Because a lot of founders that come, they sign up, but they're not necessarily ripe for funding, you know, just yet. They need a couple more months you know, to kind of prove out their traction, you know, solve some of the problems, maybe find product market fit, or at least get closer to it. And so, you know, our platform will enable them to have that information auto-populate, if not, you know, be able to manually populate. And so we collect all different types of, you know, KPIs that are all standardized that, you know, some will be more relevant to, to other different types of industries and to VCs, and that information will be trending over time once they make that connection. So trying to streamline and simplify that, uh, that process and then once they hit certain thresholds, that recalculates the algorithm. So once they hit that you know, 100K ARR or a million ARR, you know, whatever type of business it might be, whatever those K, you know, uh, KPIs might be, um, yeah, the algorithm gets updated. You know, and that might bring certain matches to the, to the top that weren't there before, to which send signals to our team to reevaluate and reassess you know, that company that we might not have run through our process prior uh, and be able to, to do so. Uh, when the time is right, and or alert the right VCs to then take action independently you know, without waiting on us to you know, bet them or um, to put them through a process. 
know, giving VCs you know, options to kind of see some of that progress. Jason, can you give us an overview of your background? I think that gives a lot of color on the business, but um, I think it'd be helpful uh, to, to hear more about how you kind of arrived here. Yeah, I guess I can, you know, it's a long story. I'll try to keep it somewhat reasonable, be reasonably short, but, you know, always a founder, always a, you know, kind of entrepreneur from the start you know, since I was 19 when I started my first business in college, you know, really hated going to school and not really know what, I, you know, what it all meant. So I wanted to apply what I was learning and started a small business to do that. Ended up becoming a full-time career for, you know, seven years, eight years or so. Uh, ended up selling that business uh, because I just wanted to move on to bigger, better things. Worked on a startup, you know, raised a little bit of angel funding. That was the story I was telling earlier. We just couldn't raise the the venture capital that we needed. Had an acquisition offer, you know, come in from uh, Kodak, which was pretty awesome to you know to think about you know, back then. It was more of an aqua hire type opportunity, but it's something excited to you know explore and go through that process. And you know, basically, as we go through the due diligence, you know, process, uh, you know, Kodak had some internal shakeup things, and basically, that deal ended up, uh, you know, falling apart in the last hour, which was kind of unfortunate. But learned a lot through that process, you know, and those negotiations and those discussions. But ultimately, ended up moving to out of San Diego into New York. I wanted to move a little faster. Uh, San Diego is a very chill, calm, let's go surf environment, and I was more of like, I want to build big shit and you know, cool shit and you know, do bigger things. And uh, moved out to New York. Joined um, a company called Liquid Sky as their chief marketing officer as a first hire. You know, me and the two founders um, ended up helping them. You know, taking them to raise you know twelve million dollars and uh, getting to one and a half million users. In, you know, in one hundred thirty countries on a cloud gaming technology uh, similar to what's out now called Luna and Stadia, which is built on you know pretty much similar technology that we had launched back then. Uh, amazing experience. You know, took us from you know those three of us to about forty plus employees. Uh, you know, building really complex technology, working with major, you know, Microsoft, um, you know, Walmart, Samsung, and other big brands. Um, ultimately, had the point where, um, you know, we got acquired by by Walmart, which I can kind of dive into a little bit more in terms of that acquisition experience and dealing with bankers and whatnot. But ultimately, as we uh, we got acquired, we went on to you know build Walmart Gaming, which is going to be this amazing, awesome experience. Walmart was, you know really on the bleeding edge of this type of stuff and what was going on behind the scenes. But, you know, a couple of weeks before launch, uh, you know, things changed when Amazon was tripling down on, uh, you know, same day delivery, mm-hmm. you know, Walmart wanted to compete and they reallocated our massive, you know, nine figure budget to, you know, next day delivery instead, you know, kind of hurt, hurt us quite a bit, but as the Silicon Valley show says, you know, it got put up on the roof, uh, which was a, uh, you know, interesting experience. That's a funny reference. Yeah, <laughs> like legit on the roof, like right. on the floor above our actual main offices of Walmart. They put us in reaches. Pretty, uh, pretty funny. But uh, ultimately, you know, big corporate wasn't my life. You know, it wasn't going to be, you know, for me anyways. Uh, ended up joining um, a startup out of Kansas City, you know, talking about being out of major markets, uh, you know, learning about that ecosystem. It was a you know, classic esports company bringing, you know, esports to schools all across the country. You know, seven guys eating ramen, doing like 100K a year, ended up getting them to, by the time I left, raise $11 million Series A, you know, $1.4 million in a quarter, uh, you know, revenue, and, you know, really scaling them up to 65 people, you know, in the company. And then ultimately just going back and forth to Kansas City just wasn't going to work. Founders and I kind of saw, you know, differently how things should, should play out. So it was best that, uh, you know, I move on. And then um, that's when I reached out to, to you, Mark, to kind of see what's going on. It was angel investing, seeing what's going on in the market. And, you know, I'd actually signed up for Thunder before uh, talking with you. 
and uh, and doing so ended up uh, you know really believing the mission, having dealt with bankers, having dealt with M and A, having dealt with raising you know several million dollars across multiple different companies. Uh, I advised for another company that raised twenty million in their Series B, um, and so that gave me a lot of exposure to how this world works, both on the investor side, the banker side, the M and A side, and the founder side. And I thought I was, you know, the, the perfect combo to to really bring this this product to you know fruition and, and be grossly different than what's been in the marketplace to date. Yeah, I mean, so we, you know, for Thunder came out of our Foundry Interplay, right? We had done a really crappy MVP by the time you showed <laughs> up, uh, just to kind of test out the concept because we believed there was something here. How did you think about joining an existing company as a founder? I I, I think the psychology of that's fascinating. You know, it's interesting because it's something I've dealt with uh, pretty much at every decision, you know, in the last several years, whether it's, you know, inviting someone into my first company as a founder and dealing with that experience and the, the struggles that we've wasted so much time on in terms of negotiating equity and all that kind of stuff is, um, you know, equity is an important discussion to have, but also it's like equity is worth nothing until it's worth something. So, you know, being smart about um, those types of negotiations and really focusing on chemistry and good relationships. Um, but yeah, just like having been a founder, you know, in the past and then, you know, joining as an executive and others, um, you know, one thing that I really realized in terms of my core strengths is I was never the original idea guy. I'm always the, the guy that turns a good idea into a great business. And, and that's kind of been my core strengths. And I've allowed the ideas to evolve, you know, similar to Thunder, you know, it sparks, you know, it sparks something with me and I find the, the way to kind of make it relate to me and my experiences. And then I'm able to draw upon those experiences, which is exactly what I did with Liquid Sky, you know, in terms of bringing gaming to any device. That was a huge pain point to me as a kid, uh, not being able to keep up with technology uh, when I was a kid with all my friends. You know, Generation Esports, bringing esports to kids all across the country with like, you know, legitimate curriculums, things I could get behind, things I was really passionate about that I was able to grow and evolve. And same with Thunder, having dealt with all my personal experiences and raising money in MA, um, you know, this is something that I could truly be passionate about and, and jump two feet in um, and know that, you know, I might not be, you know, the original idea conceptualizer. I, I'm not getting, you know, the hundred percent ownership and blocking away other people, but it gives me the you know, autonomy to, you know, make my own decisions, you know, bring in the right people, build teams and, and develop out ideas that, um, you know, in every, previous situation I've been in have, you know, built up great companies that, you know, either raise a ton of money or get acquired. That's totally spot on. You've definitely taken this to the next level. <laughs> uh, it was, you had some clay to mold, but you've molded the hell out of it. Okay. But yeah. you've been an entrepreneur for a long time. Is there a bit of wisdom, a lesson you've learned that would be helpful for entrepreneurs or kind of a little, maybe a little earlier in their cycle? Some, some wisdom you want to share? You know, having been, affiliated with entrepreneurs my whole life and just being so close to so many of them. That's basically how I am, who I am today. Just the relationships I've built with fellow you know, small business owners, entrepreneurs. It was always this common theme, you know, especially for new entrepreneurs. Like they want to be their own, they want to be their own boss. They want to call the shots. You know, maybe they're leaving a corporate job or, you know, maybe just traditional life wasn't for them. And they, they feel trying their own path is the right way to you know, be that, oh, be their own boss. But what they don't really realize is, you know, your clients or your investors are actually your boss. You know, you're, you're serving them day in, day out. It's, you know, you're not necessarily working less hours, you're working more hours, you're making less money, you know, but it's got that, that vision of like, you know, you feel you're capable of bringing more value to the world than would otherwise be possible if you didn't pursue it. 
and you ultimately do get to call the shots you know as the as the founder you get to choose who your investors are you get to choose who your clients are so there's a level of control and autonomy there uh, and so i always try to remind you know founders of that because you know if you're just coming in to be your own boss and to chill you know it might not be the you know best path for you um you know maybe there's other lifestyle type businesses to pursue but you know when it comes to like building a venture-backed company you know you're ultimately truly not your own boss in a lot of ways. You're still servicing uh, your investors and clients on a day in day out basis and working harder for less, you know, until, until you figure it out and you get it right. And then, you know, then you get rewards, but we all know how those success ratios work out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting concept. It, it takes a village, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of going it alone, lone gunslinger and building these new age companies, right? Everyone's got someone else they're dependent on collaborating with. VCs have LPs. LPs have usually have investors upchained from them. Uh, it, it's a group collaborative thing, and you have to be able to work with people. You have to. Be well, that's to- why that's why I joined because I would not be able to take Thunder where it is today if it wasn't you know working with you guys. You know, it's something that I like I mentioned before. I'm not the guy that does it by myself. You know, come up with the idea, build about it, you know, from the ground up. I I take good ideas from great people. And, you know, turn them into great businesses. I love that. You've also done a lot of M&A. Any big insights or aha moments you could share with folks? Yeah, I kind of shared a little bit about the Kodak thing. You know, for, that was, you know, super early days, small transaction size. You know, I sold my, my small business. You know, again, small, small pennies, you know, the grand scheme of things. But, you know, lots of experience in terms of just making sure expectations are managed uh, at those stages. But was the, you know, the big story is, you know, I didn't get to talk about, you know, it was the liquid sky. Um, so Samsung was our biggest investor, uh, in you know, our previous rounds and they had moved forward with, you know, acquiring us. And I was you know, deeply involved in both, uh, the negotiations, setting up the, you know, the data room, going through the due diligence process, you know, um, it was called like all the different code reviews that we had to go through to validate that our code was legit, where it was sourced, making sure we weren't stealing anything. Just the, 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 the significant amount of work that goes into not only just coming to terms as to okay why are we doing this acquisition and what's it going to be good for post um acquisition but all the work that goes into actually making a deal come together and checking all the boxes that have to get checked because you know once you once you come in with a decision maker whether it's a ceo the acquirer or you know some of the corp dev team once those things are discussed like then you just get the monotonous miserable boring stuff just like checking all the dd boxes um and what was amazing is like, you know, Samsung was going to work out really great. We're all super stoked. We had bottles of champagne. We had like all this stuff ready to go the morning of the acquisition. Uh, we had buses ordered to pick up our entire team. Wow. Offer contracts ready to go. We we're like so excited. You know, Ian, the CEO, myself, um, you know, we were talking late at night, you know, about, you know, how much fun this is going to be. And then he gets a call. I think it was like. 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. from Korea, uh, you know, whenever it was like morning time in Korea, because they just had a massive regime change in Korea mm-hmm. and, and uh, Samsung. You know, I, I forgot the, you know, the son of the chairman or whatever, you know, the CEO, basically corruption caused like a, he went to jail. And uh, that was all going on during our negotiations. They kept assuring us everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to get this deal done. Well, just so happens the new CEO that uh, has been in place for a couple of weeks had just gotten signature authority and he decided that every deal on the table is dead and needs mm. to go you know to to review that was the morning we were supposed to close 
everything wow. was done. That's crazy. Everything was done. We had champagne. Like I said, like a, we had a new office already leased with Samsung ready to go, all this stuff. And, you know, deal falls apart last minute. Talk about pivot, you know, just like, you know, having to come out of that, oh, we're got this whole new plan to go back to what we were doing and having to bring in massive six figure, seven figure B2B deals, uh, you know, to make sure that the lights keep on. So that was, you know, an insane experience. Huh. Uh, but that was working directly with the corp dev team and the senior leadership at Walmart. I mean, at uh, at Samsung. And the next experience was, you know, after we went through that experience, our our board basically is like, well, we gotta we gotta sell, you know, because Microsoft's coming in, you know, Amazon's coming in, Google's coming into this space. Uh, we either need to shop our technology around to them or you know someone else because you know we're not going to necessarily going to be able to raise the hundred million plus that we're going to need to compete with them, especially knowing that they're coming into the market. And so our chairman, who to which I was not a huge fan of, and uh, you know we definitely have had uh, you know, some better circumstances, went out and brought in a banker uh, to basically shop us around. And I have to say, like, you know, there's definitely a, a good reason why there's some bad reps for bankers in the space. You know, they don't necessarily understand you know the you know the technology, the VC, the venture capital world as much as uh, you know they should when coming into these types of spaces. And it ended up being where. Um, all the, you know, the work that they were supposed to be doing was ultimately myself and, you know, the CEO doing 100% of the work um, and then more or less just taking up space in the rooms. Um, and so it was a very negative experience that we had dealing with that banker because ultimately it was me that brought Walmart to the table. Uh, you know, I had signed a deal with them uh, to, you know, do initial you know, MVP and then they ultimately came in and started talking acquisition once we were out of it, the NDA with Samsung and that process started being handled by me and the CEO directly, um, to which our banker just had to have, you know, be in the room just to, you know, justify their existence, but ultimately wasn't there uh, contributing. And so we went through that whole experience, you know, negotiating back and forth on corp dev and, uh, you know, ultimately brought it down. You know, similar experience we did with Samsung, we had pretty much everything ready to go and we were able to move pretty quickly. And, you know, it was a really positive experience, you know, with the, with the Walmart team just, you know, takes a lot of time. Yeah, you know, I would say it was probably a year from initial conversation to acquisition, you know, closing, moving into the Walmart offices. What did you learn from that? You know, as an entrepreneur going through the M&A process, any like top tactical things? It sounds like you had a bad experience. Separate from that. Good and bad. One or two I'm, things. Yeah. yeah. But are there one or two things that you took away where you're like, okay, everyone needs to know this and they don't know it? There's a lot of things like. Like I mentioned time, you know, yeah. it's just an extensive amount of time. Yeah. It's six um, plus months typically. Yeah. Easy. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the legal side is, you know, just, you know, as a, as a founder, you know, if you're in this process, there's just a, a ton of paperwork and, you know, things you have to have locked down and ready to go. You have to be extremely organized uh, because as much as the decision maker might be totally cool with everything legal is. And it's actually legal that you need to make sure you check all the boxes with and deliver you know everything to in a timely and effective and legible manner and deal with all their dumb questions because they don't know how your business operates. They're not actually you know wanting this deal to get done. They're trying to find every way to kill this deal mm-hmm. because it you know that's less work for them if this deal dies. That's so also you their really job have to, to protect their client, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's their perspective. So you have to you know as a founder you know not lose sight of that you really have to win over you know legal corp dev teams not just you know the the decision maker 
um, you know, decision maker could ultimately be on time. That's, you know, that's your leverage. You use that person to, you know, push things forward when legal is pushing back on things that are unreasonable. Another thing is, is managing your team because deals follow through all the time. Like I mentioned, I have two deals that have fallen through and there's, I haven't talked about the acquisitions I've worked on in terms of acquiring other companies in my past. Uh, deals just fall through all the time and you can never just assume a deal is done until it's done and you have to keep the lights on and in 95, 99% of the time, you cannot tell anyone. You cannot tell anyone on your team. You have your senior executives and maybe any key personnel that might be involved in terms of the due diligence process. But if, you know, just by you talking at a bar about what's going on or you talking to friends and family or any of your employees, that could kill a deal. Yeah. And then you have to be super careful about the information you divulge. And it's exhausting because your employees come to you and they're like, we got to work on this. We got to work on that. Let's do this. Like, why aren't we doing this? And you're like, I can't tell you, <laughs> you know, and you got to find a way to make it sure that they don't get discouraged or quit. We had two people, you know, quit during M&A activity because they were so frustrated with, you know, me and the, um, the CEO not moving forward with some of their ideas because it was a direct opposition of the acquisition. And we could not tell them. And it was like so difficult and, you know, two people left because of that, um, you know, they weren't key employees, but it was still like frustrating to, yeah. you know, probably sour relationships. You didn't want to sour. Exactly. We're cool now. That's, it's all everything happened, but you know, it's yeah. still frustrating to, to do that. And a lot of founders just don't, don't know about that. Like M&A is a grueling process. Yeah, Having, it's, a, it's a psychological yeah. meat grinder. I've seen people have really hard times so with that. It's very stressful. There's a lot at stake. You know, the whole entrepreneurship thing is too, right? You've got a lot of higher suicide rates. You've got a lot of challenges in the entrepreneurship game from a mental health perspective. What do you do for mental health? Any, any wisdom you have on that that you think is important for founders to kind of pick up on, whether they're in M&A or otherwise? I think something that, you know, I can speak for myself and you know, the other founders that you know, I'm really close to that you know, build great companies you know, you really need to do take care of yourself. Um, you know, what matters to me is, you know, staying physically fit and just making sure my body is functioning properly, trying to eat clean uh, as best you can. Definitely not, you know, perfect by any means, but knowing how your body reacts to certain foods and making sure you're putting the right things in you so you can function uh, properly throughout the day. You know, I'm an exercise guy. I'm at least working out three to four days a week, if not five, um, you know, training sessions and you know, running just to make sure my body can keep up with long hours, you know, exhausting, you know, situations. Um, it's important to make sure your body's, you know, taken care of. And then from there, from a mental perspective, having outlets, you know, having people that you trust that you can candidly speak truth to, you know, a lot of founders, they feel alone because they're VCs or investors. They, you know, you might be struggling with something and you want help, but you feel like, you're giving bad signals to the VCs if you tell them actually what's going on behind the curtains or how the sausage is being made. And if you don't have friends, like-minded individuals to, to share those experiences with and have, you know, candid feedback sessions or radical candor from people that care about you and don't just care about your company. Because yeah. that's the other thing is, you know, talking to your employees or talking to your investors, their incentives, you know, they, they have different reasons to give you different feedback. You know, because they have skin in the game and they want you to do a certain thing that may or may not be in your best interest. 
Right. And so it's important to build a friend group or a network group that uh, you know you you have access to to enable that. And so I'm part of different groups that uh, you know allow for those types of conversations to happen. That's why a lot of folks join Venwise. I mean, that's kind yeah. of exactly. trying to make it a less lonely journey. It's kind of what 100%. they specialize in. Yeah, I uh, fully support those peer groups. And the last thing is, you know, something I personally do that I've done, I've only done a few times, uh, but have been absolutely transformational when coming to you know, uh, a fork in the road where tough decisions have to be made uh, and you have a mental block. Uh, something that I've explored is, you know, psychedelics like ayahuasca or, or mushrooms. It's, you know, something that's becoming oh. more commonplace, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's right. helping. It is entering the mainstream. Exactly. And it's, it helps release, you know, some of the stuff in your subconscious, things that you might be blocking yourself without knowing. And uh, I've made some of the most important decisions of my life coming out of those, those sessions um, you know, coming in from a very like more of a specific mindset, not just trying to have a good time type thing, but actually trying to unwind my brain, get into my subconscious and try to figure out, uh, difficult decisions that ultimately the, you know, the decisions are within you. And like most advice you get from people is just you talking and then regurgitating back to you. It's like, so it's a way for, right. you know, you to access, you know, the, your thoughts that, you know, are in your subconscious that otherwise would be very difficult to get that helps release some. Uh, you know, pressure on you. So going back to, to mental health. How about as a, a parent, right? You've got a, a newborn at home. Mm-hmm. You know, most people would be pretty scared to be starting a journey when they've got young children. How have you been managing that? Any particular tactics or advice on how that works for folks? Yeah, and personally, I'll throw in, I started Interplay actually when my, when my daughter was one. And I had friends and family who thought I was crazy. But... It's what I wanted to do for my life. My wife was supportive, so I went for it. What is your what What have you figured out um, since having your child about being a founder with young children? Having a great wife yeah. as uh, you know, a great partner is is crucial. That you know understands that if I wasn't to go down this path and I was to go down the safe path, I'd probably be more miserable at home. Um, you know, if I were to stay at Walmart or something and play it safe and have the good insurance and all that kind of stuff, right? My wife knew how not happy I was in those search, you know, that situation, and uh, I come home much more refreshed, knowing that I'm, you know, kind of in control of my own destiny in a lot of ways. Um, and there's certain things like I, I am particularly fortunate enough to where I have, you know, built enough up before going into a new venture um, to where I'm able to have help, you know, at home, whether it be you know nanny or my in-laws, being able to have you know support at home to know that my child is you know safe and taken care of, but also knowing that like from six to you know eight PM, I am home hundred percent, nothing else distracts me. Um, you know, completely present with my my family for dinner and putting down my daughter and then spending time quality time with my wife. Um, you know, is super crucial. Um, because if I'm not stable at home, I'm not gonna be stable at work. Mm-hmm. And so it's wise. Um, yeah, and just being completely transparent with with my wife and making sure that you know, she knows what we're getting ourselves into and then me making certain commitments to her, knowing that these will, I will not falter on these regardless of the certain you know, situations, but knowing that she's going to give me a lot more flexibility, uh, you know, to, to lean on her, uh, you know, when I need it. And she's also, you know, full-time employee for a large corporation. She's senior director, she manages like 30 people. Like she's, you know, busy in herself. So I have to respect that as well and make sure that I pick up the slack for her. So it's a very important family dynamic that, um, Fortunately, we have some help, uh, so that gives us a lot more flexibility that would otherwise probably not be possible. 
Um, but that was by design, you know, to make sure that we had that kind of comfort and flexibility before doing something like this. Well, incredible. You're making it all work. It seems kind of easy for you on the outside, but, uh, I'm sure it's not always easy. <laughs> hey, Jason, thanks yes. for being on. This was awesome. I'm sure there's a lot of insights in here for folks. Um, and I appreciate you. No, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been great. Thanks for bringing me on the journey. So if it's not obvious at this point, I'm pretty fired up about this project. I think there's a real potential for Thunder to have massive social impact by making it really easy for entrepreneurs to find the capital they need. This is where I do my pandering, which I'm forced to do by my producer, Will. If you like what you heard, please look up the like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.